Merry Christmas journey. I think you can do a little better than that. Merry Christmas journey. There we go. So we're in service number five out of 10. We're not even sure what day it is. We just know that we're supposed to like keep celebrating Christmas until it comes. It's been a whirlwind of a weekend at our church, but we are so grateful that you are here. If you're brand new, I'm Christian. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, and thanks for hanging out with us for an hour or so on your Christmas weekend. You know, probably one of the only places that's a lot busier than our church uh, this week is Bethlehem. Uh, I read an article that said this week, 1.5 million Christians will go to Bethlehem and worship at the Church of the Nativity where scholars believe that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. Bethlehem is a big deal in Israel, but the Christmas story really doesn't start in Bethlehem. It starts about 90 miles north in Nazareth. And if you ever go to Nazareth, we take trips as a church almost every year. I'll take you to the Church of the Annunciation, the largest church building in the entire Middle East is in Nazareth. It dominates the hillside town of Nazareth. And when you go to it, you, you find a church that's built on top of basically a first century village of ruins. And in the time of Jesus, uh, scholars estimate there were no more than 200 people that actually lived in Nazareth. So when you find a bunch of homes together and the coins and the pottery and the things inside tell you that they're all from the first century, this probably is the place where Jesus would have grown up. This probably is the place where Mary and Joseph would have been raised as teenagers uh, and into their young adult lives. This, this is probably a place where Jesus actually was. I was at the Church of the Annunciation for my third trip before I had to use the bathroom, and I'm so glad that I did. Because when I asked somebody at the Church of the Annunciation where the bathroom was, they pointed me through the back of the church, up two sets of stairs, and then past a little courtyard. And they said, if you keep going, there you'll find the bathrooms. And on the way to the bathrooms, my third time in Nazareth, I found one of my favorite statues in all of the Holy Land. It's a statue of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. It's one of the only things in all of Israel devoted to Joseph, the father of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this may be the only place in all of Israel where your attention focuses on the guy who was Jesus' dad in his early years. It sits in this little courtyard that's surrounded by these kind of reliefs or paintings um, of, dad, of a dad playing with their kid, of a dad holding their infant, of a dad teaching their eight or nine-year-old maybe how to make things in his carpentry shop. And as I stood there, it was one of the only times in Israel where I thought, man, this, this guy Joseph, he's, he's a really important figure in Christianity. And what I want to do tonight is introduce you to Christmas through the eyes of Joseph. Joseph is not normally the first person you think of when you think of the Christmas story, even when you think of the biblical Christmas story. Joseph, probably not one of the top two or three characters. As a matter of fact, if you lose Joseph in the nativity set, you probably just throw another shepherd in there. No, like no one would ever know. If you lose Jesus, that's bad. If you lose Mary, that's bad. You can't really replace the angels. But Danielle, my wife and I last night were walking through our neighborhood and we saw a nativity set out and, and there were shepherds and there were Joseph. And I said, they are, they are so interchangeable. Joseph is not a big a deal at Christmas as he should be. But when you study the faith of Joseph, I think there are some things you can learn. So we're going to do that tonight. And let me say this. If you're here this evening and you're not a person of faith, you're not a religious person, you're not a Christian, Christian person, you wouldn't consider yourself spiritual. First, thank you for being with us. Um, whether you came to make someone happy, whether grandma said you had to come, um, regardless of why you're here, if you're here but you're not really a person of faith, thanks for trusting us with an hour of your Christmas weekend to come and sit in our church. We count it an honor that you're here. And I, I would ask you, as you listen tonight, lean in on Joseph and figure out what his eyes saw that allowed him to trust at Christmas that Jesus 
was something special. That's what we're going to try to do. You say, Christian, what's this time going to consist of? What can I expect between now and the end? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the Bible story through the eyes of Joseph. Uh, After we get done doing that and talking about it a little bit, we're going to give you an opportunity to take communion together as a family. That is not something you have to do. We will not pass communion to everyone. We will invite families one row at a time to come receive communion and then to take it at your seats and kind of say a family prayer together. And then when you get done doing that, you will be dismissed. But I want to start with looking at the faith of Joseph. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, no big deal. Everything that we read from the Bible is going to be on a screen. If you have a smartphone, you could actually Google Matthew chapter 1, and everything I read will pop right up on your smartphone. Um, If you want to take notes, you can reach inside the bulletin they gave you. There's some notes that you can take to follow along. So if you want to take notes so you can remember, or if you're already thinking, how long until you're done? Pull out this piece of paper. When we fill in the last blank, we're almost done. So it will help you kind of know when we're getting closer to the end. If you do have a smartphone and you've downloaded our Journey Church International app, if you click on sermon notes, literally everything on the screen will be in your handheld device. And at the end, you can save it to your smart device if you want so that you can go show it to someone else or look at it later. Before we ever open the Bible at our church, um, we ask God to open our hearts. We believe the Bible is God's word. But we gotta, we got to open up our hearts so that we can hear God speaking to us. So would you just bow your heads with me quickly? Could we ask God to speak to us today? God, we thank you for letting us be here this Christmas week. God, this Christmas, we ask that you would show us how the faith of Joseph could be a pattern for our faith that might allow us to see Jesus in a way that will change our lives. God, I ask that you might bless every person that attends one of our Christmas services this year. Let them feel the love and the hope of Jesus while they sit in our services this year. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Um, So the Bible, in case you don't know a lot about the Bible, let me give you just a kind of a quick background. The Bible is made up of two large parts. One of them is called the Old Testament, 39 books. It was all written in the Hebrew language, and it's all about the, the nation of Israel and the Jewish faith. First half of the Bible, written in the Hebrew language, all about the nation of Israel and the Jewish faith. The second big half of the Bible is called the New Testament. Um, It was all written in the Greek language, and it was all written about Jesus and his followers and what they did in the world, his church, if you would call it that. The first letter, the first book in the New Testament was written by a guy named Matthew. Matthew was a close personal friend of Jesus. After Jesus' ministry and his death and resurrection, he thought, "I I should write about Jesus so everyone can know who he is. Four people actually did this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all decided after Jesus' life they would write a book about him so that people could know him. But only two of those, Matthew and Luke, talked about Christmas. Um, Mark and John both started Jesus' story as an adult. So anything we learn about Christmas comes from two people. It comes from Matthew and it comes from Luke. And scholars tell us that Luke's book came 25 years or so after Matthew's. You say, why is that important? Here's what that means. That means for the first two decades of the church... All anyone knew about Christmas was what we're getting ready to read, and what we're getting ready to read is Christmas through the eyes of Matthew. So we are kind of going way back in time, and we are becoming like the first two generations of the church where all we know about what happened at Christmas is what happened through the eyes of Jesus' earthly father. His name was Joseph. Here is his story that introduced the early Christian church to the first Christmas morning. Here's what it says starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus 
the Messiah came about. If you have a pen or you're following along, you might circle that word Messiah. Messiah, the word Messiah is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Um, the Hebrew word Mashiach means savior. Uh, the Greek word Christ means savior. The English word savior means savior. Um, so like this is saying, this is the story of Jesus the Savior, when it calls him the Messiah, it's just taking that, that Hebrew term, Mashiach, and it's trying to say it in English. But what this is saying is this is how the birth of Jesus, who was the, Messiah, who was the Savior, came about. And here's what it says. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. He then quotes Isaiah, who said, verse 23, 600 years earlier, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. I've got two goals for you this Christmas before we stop and take communion as families together. Here's the two things I hope to accomplish if God will allow me. Number one, I want to challenge you to learn three things about the faith of Jesus' earthly father. He is not normally front and center in our Christmas story, but there are some good reasons that he should be. You need to know some things about Joseph. I think it'll help all of us in our faith. And then when we get done with that, I want to give you an opportunity to connect or reconnect to Jesus in your own faith if you need to do that. And here's why. After doing ministry for 20 years and after starting to tell my friends about Jesus when I was 13 years old, here's what I believe. Throw that last graphic up there, guys, if you would. Um, I believe not everybody, but almost everyone. Not everyone in this room, but almost everyone in this room. Here, just my experience. I believe almost everyone is intending to do this at some point. Some of you started 2019 and this was your intention. Got to get back to a strong faith. And here we are at Christmas again, and the reality is like life just gets away from us. But as I talk to people, there are very few people that I talk to who say, I'm just not interested in things of faith. There are some, and that, and that might be you, but most people I think are intending to do this. Just another year got away from them, and I'm hoping if you're one of those people who said, you know what, I've been, I've been meaning to do that. I think I, I think I need to do that. I've been, a, I've been away from God. I need to reconnect. Um, or I've I've always been meaning to check out spiritual things. I never had time. Maybe tonight will be the time you slow down enough to do that. That's why that's one of my goals. Let's learn about Joseph's faith tonight. Three things. The first thing we see about Joseph's faith is this. He had a desire to connect to God. Matthew's narrating this story as an outsider, and he's saying, here's who Mary is. Here's who Joseph is. Here's how Jesus came. He, he is the narrator, like, like the story of the Grinch that was just read to us. Matthew is the narrator of the story. He's just kind of telling us what's going on. But he tells us this about Matthew, and it's, a, and it's a pretty big deal when you understand the context. In verse 19 of Matthew chapter 1, he says, here's what you need to know about Joseph. He was faithful to the law. This does not mean he was a law-abiding citizen like you and I think about law-abiding citizens. This doesn't mean that, that he drove the speed limit and always paid his taxes. I'm pretty sure there were probably not even speed limits for camels and donkeys back in the day. Like, like that doesn't mean Joseph, you know, was a law-abiding citizen. It, it means this. 
Joseph followed the Jewish laws, which were spiritual laws. What Matthew is saying when he said Joseph was faithful to the law, he said Joseph lived his life to try to connect to the God of heaven. There were in Joseph's day, Joseph's day more than 640 very specific spiritual laws that someone would follow if they wanted to connect to the God of heaven. Everything from how you cut your hair to what you would eat to what you would not eat to what day of the week you would rest to the festivals you would celebrate to how you treated your friends to how you treated your enemies and on and on and on. But Matthew didn't tell us that he followed the Jewish law so we would go learn all the laws. You can do that, but that's not why he told us that. Joseph's faithfulness tells us more about his heart than his habits. And what Matthew wants you to know and what Matthew wants me to know is when we look at Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, you need to know that this was a guy who thought in, in these terms. And, and listen closely because some of you might, this might be where you're at in your faith right now. Here were the terms that Joseph thought in. If there is a God in heaven, I would like to connect to him. If there really is a God in heaven, if there's something more, if there's a God in heaven, gosh, it's important... That I, that I would be connected to him. That, that's what Matthew wanted you to know about Joseph's heart, that he lived his life with a heart that leaned towards God. Some of you are thinking, man, why would anyone follow 640-some rules just so they could be connected to God? Because here, here's what happens. Sometimes if you want to be in a relationship strong enough, if you love someone enough, you'll do things for someone else you would never do in your own life. As a matter of fact, everyone who's been married more than 25 years knows that what I'm saying is true. And if you want to remain married for another 25 years, you do things because you're married to your spouse that you would never do of your own accord. But you do it because you love them and because you want to remain in a good relationship. Take, take me, for example. My wife, Danielle, and I celebrated 20 years of marriage this summer. I grew up in a house in southern Ohio that was built in the 1850s. Uh, pre-Civil War era. Uh, it was on the Ohio Historical Register um, Society where people could come see old houses. Uh, didn't have any central air. I didn't sleep with a night of air conditioning until my first night of college. It was wonderful. Um, we didn't have a central heating unit. We had a wood-burning stove in our front room, and then we had radiators that you would pump hot, uh, hot water into, and they would kind of radiate heat if you were close to them. In the summer when it was blistering hot, we had a ceiling fan that would suck hot air in, but nothing that would put cold air in. Um, and we didn't have a lot of, as you can imagine, a kitchen kind of built originally in the 1800s. We didn't have a lot of modern appliances um, like, a, like a dishwasher. We ne I never grew up with a dishwashing machine. Now, because someone asked me the first day of our Christmas services, um, yes, we had indoor plumbing. No, I didn't marry my cousin. Like some of you are thinking, my gosh, like, dude, where did you grow up? What era are you from? I just grew up in an old house in Ohio. Um, and we, we didn't have a dishwashing machine. Um, we had dishwashers. There were five of them named Gary and Vicki and Jillian and Marie um, and Christian. Uh, my mom's Vicki, my older sister's Jill, my little sister's Marie, my dad is Gary. Um, and of the five people, the, per the person who had to be dragged kicking and screaming to do the dishes was me. I hated to hand wash, hand dry, put away the dishes. I just didn't, I just didn't like the feel of it. I hated doing it. So I did it the least, but anytime I was in trouble. Anytime I was late to dinner, anytime I was a smart aleck, anytime I got in trouble at school, I knew my punishment was, if you wanted to get my attention, make me do the dishes for a day. If you really wanted to change my behavior, make me do the dishes for a week. And every now and then, that happens. So I hate, I just, I, I, when I think about doing the dishes, I relate it to something negative in my experience. And then I married my wife, Danielle. Danielle is a clean freak. 
Danielle has a disease that makes her want to wash the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher. Does anyone else have that (laughs) disease? Listen, I'm not talking about rinse the dishes. I'm talking about wash the dishes with soap and water and, and a washcloth and even the little scrubby thing that's a smiley face. Like at my house, before you put the dishes in the dishwasher, you have to completely wash by hand with soap and water and the washcloth and the scrubby thing, um, the dishes. Like we could take a magic marker and write on our dishwasher, second dishwasher, because they're already clean before they go in. But when we finish dinner and there are dishes sitting on the counter, I, I hand wash all of the dishes before I put them in the thing that washes the dishes because I love my wife. And that's what, that's what she wants me to do. That's the way she likes it. And when you want to be in a relationship, sometimes you do crazy things like wash the dishes when you hate washing dishes before something else washes the dishes. Like that's just how it works in my house. And my wife watches way more sports than she ever intended to watch or wants to watch because I like to watch sports. During football season, if there's a game on TV, I'm sitting down and I'm watching it like I did today with some meaningless bowl game. I love to watch football. She often sits and watches football with me. And 20 years after watching football with me, she said a few months ago, we were watching the Chiefs. Mahomes was doing his things. And she said, man, if they keep blitzing him, he's going to keep hitting those hot reads. He's just going to kill them. And I looked at her and I said, that's the most romantic thing you've ever said to me in in 20 years of marriage. Like, I think she was giving me a hot read. Like, I, like I I am picking up what you're laying down right here. You do crazy things. You do crazy things when you desire to be in a relationship with someone. And what we learn about Joseph, nine months before the first Christmas morning, that's where we are in Matthew 1, nine months before it would really happen, Joseph already had this heart that was bent towards connecting with God if there really was a God. Here's why I think that's important. I think you have that same heart too. I think every human being, it's my belief because of what I learned in the Bible, I believe every human being is born with what, what scholars call the imago Dei, the image of God. I believe that's a seed that's planted in the heart of every human being that lives. And I believe every human being is, is born with a bent to connect to the God of heaven if they really consider that he's there. Now, some of you aren't there today. A wall has been built up between you and what I believe is that very natural bent because you've, you've had some bad experiences with religion or church. You've had some hard experiences in life. You're currently experiencing some brokenness. It makes you question whether there is a God who's good and powerful at the same time. But there was a king in Israel named Solomon. He had a lot of spiritual wisdom. And he wrote this in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 that convinces me that God has created everyone to bend towards him. He said, God's made everything beautiful in its time. And he said eternity in the human heart. Here's what Solomon was saying. Solomon said, God has put it in the heart of every human being to have a moment in life, if not lots of moments in life, when you're sitting on the beach, finally fully relaxed, when you're up in the mountains at your favorite cabin skiing and you just see the magnitude of the mountains, when you look up on a beautiful, clear, starry night, or maybe when you sit at a funeral. Solomon said, God has put it in everyone's heart that at some point in their life, every human being will stop and think, there's got to be something after this, right? What comes next? There's got to be something bigger than here. There's got to be something bigger than now. Solomon said God has planted it in the heart of every person at some point in their life to stop and consider what's next. And Solomon said God does that so people will lean towards him 
so that when they're presented with an opportunity like Joseph to maybe meet someone who can connect them to God, they'll be willing to grab onto that. When we look at the faith of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, we see he had this bent, this desire to be connected to God. But he also had, number two, an awareness of sin. This is an interesting word that you probably shouldn't bring up at the dinner table this Christmas. It's like discussing politics. Sin is, sin is an interesting word to discuss, but I think, I think what you're going to hear tonight will surprise you um, in that I'm not going to name a sin. Like if, if you're brand new to church, when you hear me say sin, you're probably thinking of eight or ten things that for you, you've heard maybe a, the church or a Christian attack your whole life, and you say, oh, you're talking about this thing. Um, I'm not. At the same time, I think you're going to hear what sin is. You're going to think, oh, that's actually, that's actually way bigger than I, than I thought it was. And this is the point in Joseph's story where spiritual sense wrestled a little bit with common sense and spiritual sense won. Here's what I mean by that. I love that Matthew's not writing a fairy tale that none of us would believe. Because here's the common sense that Matthew writes into his story. And tell me if this isn't good common sense. Here's the common sense. There was a guy engaged to a girl who got pregnant, but it wasn't his baby. So he thought, I better end this. That's pretty good common sense. My son's 18. If he was engaged to a girl and she got pregnant and it wasn't his baby, I would say you probably should slow down. And, I, and really, I would say more than slow down. I'm just saying that because we're in church. I would probably say, heck no, that, like, that needs to be over. I love how Matthew laces in this common sense. Joseph was engaged to Mary. They had not been married. They had not been together intimately, and all of a sudden, she's pregnant, so Joseph thinks, I'm out. Like, of course, common sense. But then this angel comes and says to him what we find in Luke. Mary has already said to him, listen, I'm not sure what all is happening here, but God says what's happening is going to be like for the salvation of all of humanity. The, the way the angel says it specifically in verse 21 of Matthew 1 is this. Listen, Joseph, she's going to give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he's going to save people from their sins. This, this line right here, Jesus is going to save people from their sins, made Joseph wrestle between common sense and spiritual sense. Common sense says, I'm out. Can't trust her. It's a bad situation. But for Joseph and Mary, the spiritual sense of, what if this is true? What if there really is a baby that's going to be born who can, who can do this, who can forgive people of their sins. Joseph said, if that's true, that's a, that's a risk worth taking. If that's what's happening, that's a risk worth taking. I've been studying the Christmas story in Matthew and Luke. There's several key characters in the Christmas story. Joseph and Mary are two pretty key characters. Elizabeth and Zechariah, that's John the Baptist, mom and dad, two pretty key characters. There's two senior adults worshiping and living at the temple named Simeon and Anna, who are two pretty key characters in the Christmas story. The angels, the shepherds, the wise men, all really key characters. When you go record, if you just read what all of them said about the first Christmas, they all mention sin or salvation or forgiveness or redemption. There is this big thought that the whole world was looking to be cleansed of or forgiven of their sins. And they were all excited, not just that a baby was born, but that sins could be forgiven. You read it in the year 2019 and you think this, man, they must have all been really bad people. I mean, the fact that everyone needed to be forgiven of something, these must have all been really bad people, right? Listen, no, they were not bad people. As a matter of fact, the angelic messengers told Mary and Joseph, God thinks a lot of you. You're, you're doing really well. They weren't bad people. 
But they were broken people, and they knew that. And some of you are sitting in here today. Some of you are watching online this Monday evening. And listen, you are not bad people, but this year has broken you. You've you've not done everything wrong, but the marriage has not worked out, and the career has not worked out. And your health is not where you want it to be. And your friendships, there's some tension in them. Like we sit in rooms, if there's ever more than one person in a room, there's, there's probably prone to be some brokenness in that room. And this first Christmas, there wasn't this great need for a savior because everyone felt bad, but everyone knew they were broken. Here's one of the really interesting things about this thought on sin. Both the Hebrew language and the Greek language. Remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in Greek. Those are both languages that are pictorial languages. Um, There are not very many English words that you can match one for one with the Hebrew. There are not very many Greek words that you can match um, one, one for one with English words. Usually, to understand a Hebrew word, you have to be able to see a picture in your head in English. And to understand a Greek word, you have to be able to hear a whole sentence in English, because they're just, they're much richer languages than our English language. And when you go into the Bible and you look up the word sin, there's a phrase and a picture that maybe make you think differently of sin than you've ever thought before, because the biblical definition of of sin is the phrase missing the mark. That's what sin is. When the Bible talks about sin, it's missing the mark. And here is the picture. Here's the picture of sin in the Hebrew language. It's a target, if you can imagine a target, and it's someone pulling back the bow and arrow and shooting and missing the bullseye. That's sin. It's a target with a bullseye, and someone cocks back the hammer, and they aim, and and they miss the bullseye. Sin is missing the mark. The greatest question to ask when you realize that's what sin is is this question, well, what's the mark? I mean, if you're saying that God has set a mark for my life, if you're saying that God has, has put this bullseye out there for me and said, hit it, um, I'd at least like to be aware of that. I may not have ever shot at it. I may never care to shoot at it. However, if there's a mark I'm supposed to hit, lay it on me. What is it? Good question. What's the mark? Hard answer is this. The answer is the perfection of God. God says to connect to me, to live in relationship with me, to be like me, one day to be with me, You have to be just like me. So God says, here's this target, and here's the center of the bullseye. Here's what I want from your life, expect from your life, need from your life to be close to you. I need you to hit the bullseye of perfection. Every thought you've ever had, every word you've ever spoken, every action, every reaction, every conversation, every action, everything your eyes have ever glanced at, I need you to be as perfect as God would be. And as all of us hear that, we think, that's crazy. Some of you hopefully are thinking, Christian, I don't believe you. That can't be what the Bible says. At least I hope you're thinking that because Jesus very plainly gives us this almost impossible task. In Matthew 5, 48, in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, here's the standard. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I have met a lot of good people. Um, I know a lot of good people. Some of you know a lot of good people. Some of you are very, very good people. Some of you have grandparents and great-grandparents that are saints in the eyes of the world. But I have never met anyone who I have believed, and I've never met anyone in their right mind who would say, I'm not just a good person, I'm a perfect person. 
I've never had one second in my life where I've been anything but, but what God would be if he were here on earth. I've never met anyone who believes they are that. And when you understand God's standards, you think, well, gosh, no one can connect to God then. And in Romans chapter 3, there was a guy 2,000 years ago named Paul who started churches all over the Mediterranean world. He would write letters to churches. And one of the letters that he wrote to the church in Rome, he said, he said what we've just kind of unpacked through this picture of target practice. He said, listen, everyone's sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone who's ever took aim at being perfect their entire life like God is perfect has missed that target. It's impossible to hit that target. Everyone who's ever tried has missed. Nobody has been who God would be if he were here. That's where we say, is that a problem? Okay, well, like we, if that's true, we would believe that, but we're all in the same boat. Is that, is that a problem that we have missed the standard God has set for us? And Paul continues, and he says, yeah, it's actually a very big problem because he says in Romans 6, as he continues this line of thought, the cost of missing the mark, the consequence of missing the mark, the wage of long-term missing the mark, the wages of sin is death. He's not talking about natural death, but in, in eternal death, an eternal separation from the God who created you and wants to be with you. The wages, the consequence of missing the mark is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, wait a minute, so you're telling me, which I probably agree with, um, that I'm not as perfect as God would want me to be. No, none of us are. But you're also telling me, if I'm not, that one day I'm going to be eternally separated from God. Yes, unless you choose the gift that God has given you and his name is Jesus. You say, what happens then? What does Jesus do? Let me give you an illustration. I've never wanted to be Canadian even one day in my life. It's too cold. I hate the Blue Jays. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I could memorize their national anthem. Like I, I've never just had this thought of, hey, I wish I was from Canada. Except for one day, a few months ago, I read an article and I thought, wow, I wish on that day I would have been Canadian. And here's, here's what had happened. Several years ago, Chase Bank, some of you have a Chase credit card, moved into the Canadian market. They wanted to expand their North American territory. So they moved into Canada they opened up a bunch of offices, they gave a bunch of mortgages, they gave a bunch of credit cards, they tried to get into the Canadian market, and after doing it for a few years, they realized, we're probably losing more money than we're making, so last year, they shut down all, their, they shut down all of their business in Canada, they shut down all their offices, they moved back to just the United States, and they sent a letter to people saying, listen, we're not going to do any more big business here, but everyone, um, if you owe us money, you need, to pay, you need to pay us back the money. They did that for about a year. And then just a few months ago, they sent everyone in Canada who owed them money a letter saying, after a year of trying to collect everything, it's not worth it anymore. We have closed your account. We've canceled all the debt. Don't worry, you don't have to pay anything back. Now, there was a day in my life before I met Dave Ramsey that that, that, like, that would have been good news. That, that letter, that would have been like a Merry Christmas letter. We've closed your account, and no matter how much you owed us, don't worry about it. We, we've canceled it. You don't have to pay anything back that you owe us. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of Christmas. God says your entire life you've been aiming for perfection and every time you miss, you build up this huge bank account called sin that separates you from me. However, I'm not gonna send you a letter. I'm gonna send you a son named Jesus and if at Christmas you choose to accept my offer, I will erase all the imperfection in your life. I will forgive you everything and you can start brand new. You say, why would anyone do that? Listen, because people do crazy things to be in a relationship with someone they love, and God loves you. And, and listen to the crazy thing he did at Christmas. 
He asked his son who sat beside him in heaven since before eternity began, will you go be born of a baby? He said, yeah, I will. And then he said, will you for 33 years live a perfect life because the standard of being with me is perfection, but I need one person to get it right. Jesus said, yeah, I'll do that. And he said, at the end of that perfect life, I'm going to need you to die because to meet my standard, you got to be punished for sin. So will you be punished for sin? And Jesus said, yeah. And then God says, will you offer your perfection for imperfection and your death for life so that anyone who wants to cash out can say, I've been imperfect, but if I can have Jesus' perfection, I'll take it. My sin deserves death, but if Jesus will give me life, I'll take it. Will you do that? And Jesus said, yes, that is the message of Christmas. He said, why would anyone do that? Because you do crazy things to be in a relationship with people you love. And folks, you may not have ever heard this. You may not believe this, but God loves you. He loves you, which is why at Christmas we celebrate Jesus coming. Joseph had a faith that had an awareness of sin. That doesn't mean he had a list of these 20 things that I did, but he had an awareness. What God demands, I can't do without someone helping me. So spiritual sense won over common sense. And he said, if this stuff is real, let's give it a chance. But it took, number three, a move to a supernatural belief. It took a move to a supernatural belief. Like Joseph had to have faith and trust in something that he couldn't see, but he had to believe in. And here's what you need to understand about this message as we come to a conclusion now. I cannot convince you that anything that I have said in the last 20 minutes is true. I have no ability to reach inside your heart and make you believe that what I am saying about Christmas, about Jesus, about you, about God's love for you is true. I can't do it. I wish that I could, but I can't. That only happens through a supernatural step. As a matter of fact, there are two types of people that have been listening to this message tonight. There, there are people who have heard some things that maybe, hopefully, at some point in the message, you thought, hey, that's interesting. I didn't know that. But it's all stayed in your head. Nothing has got to your heart. And there are others of you who, have, as you've listened, here's what it says in the New Testament so often when God was speaking to people. As, as you've listened, your heart's burning within you. Like, you don't know what that means, but it's, it just feels like God's speaking to your soul, not your ears tonight. Joseph was in that second group of people. The angel came and asked him to do something that was crazy according to common sense. But a supernatural sense said, let's try it and see what happens. Because in verse 24, it says, when he woke up, he did it. When he woke up, he changed his mind. Spiritual sense won over common sense. He did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, and the rest is history. Here we are 2,000 years later celebrating their son. But it took a supernatural belief called faith. Here's what you need to understand. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It's the choice of belief. Faith doesn't mean I got every question answered, so now I believe. Faith says my heart, even though my head doesn't understand everything, my heart, there's this thing in my heart telling me, to step. That's faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 describes faith this way. Here's how the Bible talks about faith. It's the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance about what we don't see. It's saying, I'm going to choose to be sure about this, even though I can't prove it. I'm going to have hope in it, even though it's not going to come until the very, very end. That's just, that's faith. That's a picture of faith. And the only way, if you have never connected to God, the only way to connect to God is through a supernatural step called faith. You trust what God is saying to your soul when you think, I don't, 
I don't understand all this. I can't explain all this, but I feel in my heart that God is speaking to me tonight. In December of 1908, there was a bushman living in the mountains of Liberia by the name of Jasper Toe, who was wrestling with his tribe's religion, his, his tribe practiced some witchcraft, and he was okay with religion. He just wanted to understand more. So as he told his story in his autobiography, he said one day stood outside kind of his, his mud hut, he looked up to the stars of heaven and he thought, God, if you're there, like I would love to connect with you, but I need to know more. I feel like they tell me to do things for you, but they've not told me who you are, why I'm supposed to do that, why you're worthy of my worship, why you even care about me. God, if you want me to follow you, I've got to know more. And he said he went back into his hut that night and I can't explain it. I don't know if it was a voice. I don't know if it was a vision. I don't know if it was a dream. He said when he woke up in the morning, he felt like God had told him, go to Garraway Beach. It was a seven days walk from his village out of the mountain. On the, on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean in West Africa. God said, go to Garraway Beach. There you're going to see a big box with steam coming out of it on the water. He'd never seen a steamship, but that's what he saw in his head. You're going to see a big box floating on the water with steam coming out of it. A smaller box is going to come out of the big box, and the people in the smaller box are going to come to you and tell you everything you need to know about me. Go. He said, Christian, that sounds crazy. It sure does. I mean, it sure does. It sounds insane, but he did it. He walked seven days, and according to his story, on Christmas Day, 1908, he arrived at Garraway Beach. And that same time, an American missionary couple from the Northeast by the name of John and Jesse Perkins were riding by on a steamship. Here was their story. John had been a missionary in Liberia a decade earlier. His wife had died, so he went back to America and said, I'll never go back. It's not worth it. He met and fell in love with Jesse, and his heart just burned for the people of Liberia again. So they decided again that they were going to go to Liberia and tell people about Jesus, but they didn't know where. As they got on the steamship in New York City to head across the Atlantic, the captain said, where are you going? And they said, God said, he'll tell us when we get there. So every morning, they would wake up, go out on the deck of the ship and pray, God, tell us if today is the day we're supposed to get off. That Christmas morning, 1908, as they were steaming past Garraway Beach, they felt like God spoke to them and said, here's the place, get off. So they went to the captain and said, we're supposed to get off today. And the captain said, I can't let you off. The water's too shallow. There's no dock. There's no pier. Um, this is cannibal country. If I let you off, they're going to kill you. They're going to eat you. I can't let you off here. And they said, we have to get off. This is our stop. And he said, if, you, if I let you off here, we're going to have to literally put you in a lifeboat and you will have to row yourself to shore. And they said, this is where we feel like we're supposed to get off. So they put him in a boat. They lowered him into the water and they rowed themselves to shore and on the cliff overlooking the beach, watching the big box with steam coming out of it, lower a little box, the road to shore was Jasper Toe. He raced to the beach, introduced himself. John, because of his previous missionary work in Liberia, could understand a little bit of what happened and Jasper basically said, God told me to come and he told me, you would tell me everything there was to know about God. So they told him the story of Jesus and who he was and what had happened. He gave his life to Jesus and said, will you come tell my family and my tribe? They said, yeah. They took a week to walk back to his village, told his village what had happened, and all of his village came to faith in Christ. Within a year, they built the first school in that part of Liberia. Within two years, they built the first hospital in that part of Liberia. Within three years, they built the first seminary in that part of Liberia to send people out to tell people about who Jesus was. And 25 years later, when John and Jesse Perkins got back on a boat to come back to America, tens of thousands of people in tribal Liberia had put their faith in Jesus because one guy in Liberia and two people in America took a chance on the supernatural voice in their heart and said, I don't get it, 
but I'll accept it by faith. My hope is that this Christmas, if God is speaking to your heart, my hope is if there's even one of you, like Jasper Toe in his village, that you'll say, I know God's speaking to my heart, and I don't get it all. But if there really is a God in heaven, and I really can connect to him, and he will really forgive everything I've done wrong, and he really will see me with the perfection of Jesus, and he really will direct my future and one day give me heaven, if that's all true, I'm in. It doesn't happen here, it happens here. But if God is speaking to your heart, I hope you'll say yes. I would do everything in my power to unlock your heart if I, if I could, but I can't. I heard a message several weeks ago on a podcast that said hearts can only be unlocked from the inside. And I thought, God, that's right. You can speak to a heart, but the only person who has the keys is the person sitting in your seat. You're the only one who can unlock your heart and say, all right, God, I feel you speaking to me. Come on in and, and let's begin a relationship. Our prayer for you this Christmas is that you might be willing to do that. Would you bow your heads with me and pray as we consider what we've learned? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed, but hearts are open. Christmas is about a desire to connect or reconnect to God. Christmas celebrates the fact that God wanted to live in a relationship with us so much that he sent his son to live the perfect life he demands and to die the terrible death we deserve, all so we could choose forgiveness through Jesus. But that choice would have to be a supernatural belief through faith. 